are listening to Up To Me Radio, the best in inspirational talk radio. It's up to me. Welcome to another episode of Call for Karen's Empowerment Hour. My name is Michelle Bolden, and I will be your guide as we journey through caregiving together. The Empowerment Hour will bring inspiration, education, and resources to our audience and family caregivers. The tangible information that we provide during today's episode can be applied immediately after listening to the podcast. This month, we are focusing on your healthcare team. Your healthcare team normally includes a physician, pharmacist, a nurse, and often a rehab therapist. That could be a physical therapist, occupational therapist, or a speech therapist. Now, rehabilitation after hospitalization may occur in acute rehab, which means it's a shorter time. It's a more aggressive program. It could occur in subacute rehab, which means that it's a little less aggressive, less treatments per day, may take a little more time to accomplish your goals. Um, You can have it in-home or more often than not, it's a combination of both. A little bit of in-home followed by some outpatient rehab therapy. The need for rehab may have been the result of an extended stay because there was an acute uh, illness that occurred or that you had a flare-up of a chronic illness. However, way too often, it's the result of a fall. According to the CDC, millions of older Americans, those who are 65 and older, fall. In fact, more than one out of four older Americans fall each year but less than half of that amount will tell their doctor that they fell. One in five falls causes a serious injury, such as a broken bone or head injury. About each year, three million older Americans are treated in emergency departments for fall injuries. In 2015, the total medical costs for falls totaled about $50 billion. 75% of that cost was paid by Medicare and Medicaid. So as we talk about falls, being safe in the home, rehab therapy, I'm excited to bring along someone who may be part of your team, occupational therapist. And so I'm excited to welcome our guest today, Phaedra Mashborn Olamo. Welcome, Phaedra. Hi, thank you for having me. You're welcome. Did I get that right? Uh, Yeah, you did great. Okay. (laughs) Thank you. Well, we are glad to have you here to share your experience and your work. So can you start by um, telling us your background and what your current work is now? Okay. So I'm an occupational therapist. I've been an occupational therapist practicing for nearly 18 years. I received my BS, my bachelor's in occupational therapy from Florida A&M University and right fellow Rattler here. And um, I actually received my master's in healthcare administration years later from Utica College. Um, following graduation, I've, you know, started as a traveling therapist. Uh, I got my first job in your hometown of Chicago, and I really just traveled, did local contract around the city, Um, did not know where I wanted to land. I wanted to try 
all parts of rehab. I knew that I was a phys dis uh, clinician. I knew that I wanted to work with adults. And so I actually got my first job at a subacute facility. At that time, they were referred to as subacute fit facilities, um, which was inside. They also had some long-term patients. And so after I left that, that position, um, I just started working in acute care hospitals, like inpatient acute on the floors, um, prior to you coming up, a patient coming down for acute rehab. Uh, so if I, I've done that setting. I've also done outpatient um, and home health. Um, later in my career, I started taking on more supervisory roles and, and internal auditing roles and just really looking at uh, how safe residents were in, in the skilled nursing facility in which I worked. I was also a part of the MDS team, which reviews um, quality indicators like preventing falls and skin breakdown and skin breakdown and also um, hospital readmissions. Uh, and so uh, educating about falls, whether it's at home or in a facility is just, it's always been a big part of what we, what we focused on. It's a priority even more so now that right. we have so many people in the community um, who are aging in place. So um, presently here in Atlanta, I am in private practice. I am a Medicare Part B provider, uh, and which means that that is sort of your outpatient therapy. But I have a mobile practice, so I can I go from home to home, providing occupational therapy services to individuals who may have difficulty leaving their home for outpatient therapy services. Okay. Um, and I'm also a certified aging in place specialist, which for the most part, um, gives me the skill set for uh, recognizing safety hazards in the home and recommending uh, modifications. Okay, great. Wow. That's a wealth of information. And, you know, I just, I, as I realized, we define a couple of words that people will hear a lot um, in the community, acute rehab and subacute rehab. Right. So can you talk a little bit about those programs? Because I know um, it's overwhelming when you're leaving a hospital and all of this is being thrown at you at discharge. And they're saying you can go to acute rehab or you can go to subacute, you can go home. And you're like, okay, what does that even mean, right? Yeah. So can you spend a few minutes talking a little bit about acute versus subacute rehab? Absolutely. Um, and within the continuity of care, um, once you're admitted to a hospital and you do have an inpatient rehab hospital stay, that length of stay is typically about 10 days. Um, and that's where, as you mentioned, you get a very intense um, type of rehab. And that typically is going to be about three hours a day. Um, that's actually a criteria you need to be able to tolerate about three hours of uh, exercise or activity a day in order to qualify for uh, acute rehab stay. Uh, following that, um, if you still require some level of rehab that it cannot be accommodated in the home, because right now the focus is to get you home as soon as possible. If you are not safe to go home and you do require a skilled level of care, and typically it needs to, skilled needs to include uh, some nursing, um, obviously, or very high fall risk, um, uh, then we refer you to subacute care. So subacute facilities are, for the most part, operating inside of skilled nursing facilities. And they're sort of like all in one now. So typically in, in the past, we've called them um, subacutes, and then you had a nursing home, where now they're just SNFs, skilled nursing facilities. 
And there are more subacute beds in these facilities, meaning they are short-term stays and not as short uh, as an acute rehab, um, but definitely not long-term. And so uh, typically the average length of stay is two to four weeks in a subacute for a subacute stay. Um, And the average amount of therapy may be an hour a day or an hour to two hours a day. Um, And, you know, that, that just depends on the need and on the skill level. Um, And following subacute, if you need more, more assistance and you're, you're safe enough to go home, um, there's home health and home health is different from a home care agency. Home health is um, home health care is operated by what we call CHAWS or certified home health agencies. That's what you own the home care agency, so you know all this. Um, but, and that level of care is also sort of managed within or reimbursed by Medicare Part A. Um, and that, that could be for a month or for 30 days um, or longer, depending on the need. Okay. And that's typically a few days a week, two to three times a week. Okay. And that's just important that people kind of understand that distinction and distinction distinction as we talk about acute versus um, subacute. And when you mention about it requires up to a certain amount of time, a requirement generally for providers is related to who's going to pay for it, right? Yes. So Medicare says that this is a requirement in order for you to meet them for subacute. So no one is placing that on you just as a general practice. These are generally guidelines that are related to the payment. So I just want families to understand that as they're making their decision. And so when we talk about rehab, there's a different realms of rehab, as I may say, Um, there could be, you know, multiple types. So can you talk about some of those types of rehabs? And we most often hear OT and PT and kind of what's the difference between the two? Uh, So I'll, I'll start with, well, I'll start with PT. Everyone recognizes physical therapy, uh, which typically physical therapy um, is really related to mobility. Um, so that is whether you're walking or ambulating via a wheelchair or some, si- some type of mobile device. Um, the lower body typically, so I'm not a physical therapist, but this is the way I, for the most part, describe um, differentiate OT from PT. OT is the focus is on improving your occupation and an occupation is any activity that you do that you want to do or need to do in order to live your life. And we assess the full body uh, and we, we assess, we assess and consider all those things um, that are related to you performing that task. So it, it may include your physical strength and balance but also your vision, also your sensory motor system um, and your health, your cardiovascular system. Um, And so what we do is we provide interventions and sometimes those interventions are exercises. Sometimes they're just activities that uh, challenge you. Uh, Sometimes they are modifications to your environment or we adapt a way that you do something or we recommend an equipment or device that can help you in that. Um, In related to rehab, we are for the most part known for ADLs or activities of daily living. Um, So self-care, 
Um, so that's your dressing, your bathing, your washing. And what we do is we want to empower and teach clients to be able to do these things as independently and safely as possible. And sometimes it does not mean that they will return to a level of complete independence, but with some modification, maybe some equipment, they will be able to do it without as much assistance or just with an with an assistive device. Um, in addition to your traditional ADLs or self-care, bathroom mobility is typically a big part of occupational therapy because, because bathing is. And although that's a degree of uh, a level of uh, overlap between PT and OT, we sort of share in that uh, dealing with the bathroom. Um, this is a very uh, specific area that we really focus a lot on in home health because most falls occur in the bathroom. Um, so there's that, uh, AOTA, which is our governing body, um, they have now in the new framework, um, identified health management as an occupation, meaning your ability to manage your health conditions. So that's monitoring your glucose levels, uh, uh, obviously your medications, we've been involved in medication management for a while, um, but these are things that we can also provide interventions for because if you're not able to if you don't have the grip strength to open your medications or you can't see see labels right you know or you can't uh properly clean your equipment right. and you know you need to do that on a regular basis and this impacts your health and so and these are things that you need to do on a daily basis so they can they are considered necessary occupations and so this is also generally ordered by a physician or someone is ordering this service in the home for the occupational therapist and it's identified by a physician mm -hmm. that the service is needed. So it can be identified by a physician, by a physical therapist, by a social worker, by an NP, a nurse. Okay. Um, the majority of all my referrals have always come from a nurse, typically. Um, typically they're the first ones in the home and oftentimes the last ones in the home and, uh, you know, and they're assessing, you know, with the care plan, they're, they're filling out everything. And so if there is any deficit, um, they're bringing in the OT and this is doing during a home health stay. Uh, the challenge is, is that, or home health period, the challenge is that once a person has been discharged from home health services and they're not able to go to, to outpatient, uh, to an outpatient clinic, maybe there's an accessibility issue, which we see a lot. Um, and accessibility could mean difficulty getting out in and out of the house a few times a week. Maybe it's a transportation issue. Um, and, you know, they require ongoing services. Uh, there are mobile practices such as my, such as the one that I operate in that come to the home with a referral and say, hey, you know, if there's no skilled nursing need and you right. only need help with say, uh, ADLs or maybe, you know, you were uh, able to do certain things uh, without any assistance and now you need a little bit of assistance, that's a decline. And so let's get a referral to an occupational therapist, to a physical therapist so that we can prevent a, a significant decline. Because what happens is once there is a significant functional decline, a fall typically fall, follows. And so- Yes, absolutely. And you know, um, now that we mentioned falls, um, that, that's okay. a big reason why often you're in the home. So we try to prevent those things from happening by um, 
using those interventions that you provide for prevention, right? But allowing right. for them to be able to do occupational things. And at home, we're talking, I tell people like how you're cooking, how you're reaching for the food, how you're washing your laundry. That's where occupational therapy comes in as to how you're functioning every day, right? And so as we mentioned falls, um, you know, which I gave some numbers about the falls, but um, what are some common areas um, in the home? And I know you have your certification expertise in this area. What are some common areas where people see falls in the home? Excuse me. The number one area is going to be the bathroom. I mean, a lot of our patients are on multiple medications. A lot of times they're going to the bathroom several times a day. Um, so, so definitely the bathroom and the average size of the, well, bathrooms in this country, typically they're about the size of a closet. The majority of them, they're very small and the doors typically open inward. And so I've had more patients than I can remember or count who have fallen back in their bathrooms and sort of being stuck between the door and not been able to get up. Um, and I've had people who have been on the floor for three days or more. And, and I mean, so, and so that's problematic. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and there, there, that's definitely a, a safety hazard. So what I typically recommend is if I do have someone who's in the home and they live alone or they're alone for most of the day, you know, to keep maybe a mobile a mobile phone or a cordless phone in the bathroom or to carry it with them on their walker um, or, you know, with a little bag um, on their way to the bathroom. I also recommend not closing a bathroom door. Um, and I understand that there are dignity issues um, if you live with other people, but if you're home alone, then, you know, maybe let's remove that door if it's very problematic. Um, let's change it to a pocket door, a door that sort of slides versus opens in and out. That's a, a, an expensive change or a, a less expensive, not necessarily inexpensive. Um, the second number, the second area that I find a lot of um, falls is getting up from bed or from the chair. Once again, polypharmacy. The majority of the people that we see, and I know you've seen this because you've done these intakes, how many medications are they on? The Yes, that alone necessitates a referral um, to OT and PT because chances are if you're on six or more um, medications, you're going to have some lightheadedness or some sort of uh, change during some sort of lightheadedness or dizziness doing postural changes. So, and that increases your risk of falls, the more medications you're on. So having to provide the education for patients to sort of pace themselves and be aware of these changes, of these feelings when they are going from lying to sitting and then sitting to standing and, um, and not doing it all in one go, even if that's, you know, the way you typically do it and just being mindful of those things. Uh, Equipment that is either broken, and by equipment, I mean wheelchairs or walkers or canes that are inappropriate uh, for the patient needs. Maybe at some point it was an appropriate device, but you know we changed. So a, a device that was appropriate three months ago, now there, there's been, there have been a few changes. Right. Mr. or Mrs. Smith may need a walker now. And so if we're not 
constant constant communication or you know at least routine communication with them to identify these needs we won't be able to get one in in time um, and this is why i advocate for a um just a, a, a relationship with a therapist that can go, just check in in a phone call hi how are things going do you need me to come you know has anything changed um, without having to go to a doctor, because at that point we can reach out to the doctor and say, hey, you know what, we may need a referral. Right. And, you know, you mentioned the, the term poly medication. And so we just multiple medications that people are taking. That's exactly what that is, just multiple medications. And as you talked about the change of equipment, I thought about how often we find families um, whose loved one doesn't want to use the equipment. It's a dignity thing. I don't want to be seen in public with that cane or that walker or that wheelchair. And so I, what are some things maybe you can do to kind of address that other than, look, if you don't do it, you might fall and end up in the hospital and with a broken bone, right? So yeah. we all that as caregivers. <laughs> That's a difficult, uh, that's definitely a difficult conversation. And we definitely receive a lot of feedback. Uh, a lot of people do not want to use walkers, uh, canes, or even raised toilet seats or bedside commodes. That's probably the biggest resistance mm -hmm. is to the bedside commode. Um, what we have had to do is just sort of teach um, or structure the environment in such a way that they are able to scale like maybe with a grab bar. So we've recommended, we've been able to recommend, you know, some railings along the hallway okay. to assist, okay. and, and, but it has to be safe, anything that we recommend. And it doesn't always work out that way. And we provide the recommendation, you not, that we don't, we can't force them to accept it. And, okay. and sometimes it takes, it takes some time. So, you know, there's a constant assessment of how willing is this individual to, you know, to implement these changes after a couple of balls, it happens. Yes. You know, they're more willing and, you right. know, uh, and sometimes you have to push a little bit. And it's, I find that it's easier for me to push than it is a family member. So yeah. I'm okay with doing that. Mm -hmm. And I've had to really put my foot down for, for I've had patients who are very high fall risks. Mm -hmm. I've had patients that really scared me that, you know, have fallen. And I mean, when you hear that someone has fallen and, and no one came to their aid and no one was there yes. for days. So that's, that's days that they've been without their insulin. That's, you know, if, or their, their medicate, other medications, they've not eaten and they've, you know, sort of been in that spot. And I've had to relay that information. Like you, I will not, I will come to your house. You know, that I've had to show, you know, sincere concern and it's typically well received when, you know, when I explain to them, you know, this is why I am pushing for this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, there are some cases, some people are just going to refuse, but often for the most part, I've, I've been able to be quite convincing. And, you know, I will say um, you can do all the pushing in the world, but, you know, it is that person's individual decision to make whether they're going to do it or not. And hopefully they will. Um, but on the opposite end of that, if they don't listen and they do fall and they're at home, at home by themselves, um, which is very scary. And so, you know, we talked a little bit about preventive measures for falling. We'll talk a little bit more about that. But as you mentioned about people being there for days and days, um, it's really a good safety plan that um, if you do live alone, that you have someone that checks in with you every day. And they know that if I don't hear from you every day, something is wrong and I need to dial 911. 
um, you know, even the falling and getting up buttons, you know, they work as long as you have them around your neck. I mean, you can certainly do that as well. But not only does that one person contact you, um, allow for you to have that security for you, but also that socialization. You're having a conversation with somebody at least once a day. You're not so isolated. So for those who have family members that live alone, they don't want anyone there, just make sure you're checking on them every day to make sure they're okay, because it's that one one fall that happens and they're there for days and days and the cousin thought the other cousin talked to them and the son taught the other daughter talked to them just make it your responsibility to go ahead and reach out to that loved one I just think that's such a great point about people falling and just being stuck for such a long time right, right. Um, and so are there any other fall preventive measures that we can take in the home as family caregivers or if you're just living by yourself well, you know, I, I joke about the scatter rugs because a lot of people don't like getting rid of the scatter rugs. Um, you know, they're, they're trip hazards. Yes. Um, definitely uh, something that's also less expensive, uh, changing the handles on the doors to levers. So the kind of you just press and release. Okay. Um, because a lot of times the, you know, it's difficult. They have, there's a, people have a difficult time turning the handle and they pull and then they lose their balance or they push and they lose their balance. So those are easier um, um, handles to uh, manipulate. In the kitchen, making, if you're not able to uh, reach, you know, sort of the higher um, shelves and you are responsible for your own meal prep, um, just make sure that someone help, you have someone move the items that you use the most um, in, you know, a good reach. So rather it's on the counter or just above, um, because we have a lot of falls that also happen with the step stool that everyone has in their kitchen that folds, you know, and, and, yeah. they, and they get that out and I don't care how old they are. They've been using it for years and they like their kitchen just so, um, and so we've, we've, you know, uh, sometimes a session is let's decide what, spices or what things that you're going to need this week or on you know ongoing and let's find a you know a place for them that you can reach on your own without you pulling out that stool let's right. think about that um and i did mention that oh the things that are not as expensive grab bars okay. grab bars yeah Grab bars are probably the number one thing that we would recommend um, and you can also use them outside of the doors. So coming up the front door, you know, typically there's some steps and if there's not a rail or maybe, you know, you're not able to install a rail because it's a rental property, you can easily add a handle, a grab bar right outside of the, of the entrance. And so that can serve as some stability as you're walking in the house, if there's a, a step to get in. Um, but oh, grab bars anywhere. You can use grab bars anywhere. You don't have to use them just in the bathroom. You can have a longer one alongside the hall or in the hallway. So it's easier for you to kind of walk down the hallway. Uh, tap lights, the ones that you can get, you know, Amazon, yeah. even Dollar Tree. Right. Um, because, you know, when you're getting, getting up to go to the bathroom in the middle of the night, which is also a, a time that's, you know, we have a lot of falls, um, having a tap light or LED light, um, placing them in the cabinets even, 
Yes. And many of those are motion censored. So, you know, yes. you walk past them and they come on automatically as absolutely. well. So that's, yes, absolutely. And then they have a little adhesive on the back of it that you can easily apply. And these things are inexpensive or, right. you know, really don't cost anything. Moving the spices from up to down. I mean, that's not hard. That's something that you can do that doesn't require a makeover, just those simple things as well. Right. And, you know, often when we do assessments in a home, we talk about like the bathroom that you mentioned a lot of the falls, the handheld shower heads and the benches and things that they can get into and not having all those extra rugs in the shower on the floor. Um, oh, yeah. As well. <laughs> yeah. So the non-skid mats, non-skid mat we don't like because uh, those suction cups do not work. Um, the strips are actually better. The ones that okay. you would find, yeah, that actually stick uh, to the actual tub, those are better. But, um, and it's easy to, you know, even to, you know, to purchase a shower chair or, or a, um, a, a tub bench, uh, but typically insurance will cover it, but you, you would just need to be properly trained on how to use it and the height needs to be adjusted. And so you have your, your PT or your OT um, do that for you. Okay. Um, but you can purchase those things and it's still safer than standing and falling. Yeah, that's right. And reaching back and forth with the shower yeah. hand or adjusting it is also safer. Right. Safer. So when we talk about falls, so you don't live alone, there's someone in the home with you, your family caregivers there, you fall and they say, okay, well, let me pick them up. Okay. When is it okay? Is it ever okay to pick up and when is it time to call 911 so you definitely want to ask and it, you know you can tell when someone and especially if they're your loved one when something's not right um but you definitely want to ask if they you want to uh find out if they hit their head if they hit their head i need you know you definitely need to call 911 right um, but even they can easily break the wrist or, or fracture or hurt the shoulder and moving them into a different position. And if they bear weight on that could, um, you know, it could worsen the issue. Um, so definitely checking out pain. If they are not in any pain, if they did not lose consciousness, um, if they're fine and you, you sit there for a couple minutes and everything is great and you, you ask every every question there is to ask about lightheadedness, dizziness, did you see stars? And you want to start to transition them, you know, to get them up. People typically want to sit straight up and then pull them. That is uh, probably one of the most dangerous things to do for yourself and the caregiver, mm -hmm. because that momentum can cause you to go backwards. You can hurt yourself or then they may let go and, you know, and then fall right. backwards. So what we do as clinicians, we, we actually train you on how to get up for a fall. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I do know that some of the websites have um, some, some practice where they, you know, someone has done an evidence-based something about getting up for a fall from a fall, but typically it involves rolling to your side. And if you're able to come to all fours and then someone is able to bring a chair so that you can bring one knee up at a time and then uh, transition into standing with some assistance. Uh, this, there is a way to get up from the fall. Okay. Um, but in my opinion, if the person has very limited mobility to begin with, right. if they already require assistance, then you, I would prefer that you call someone to help you. 
Um, and to not do it alone because you can probably possibly make things worse. But the person is very mobile and they were walking before and it was just an accident and they're fine. And I would say definitely bring a chair closer, uh, trans roll them over, you know, have them roll get on all fours and then uh, transition into standing from there. Right. And, you know, for some, if you're five foot and 120 pounds and a person you're helping is six foot and 300 pounds, it's not a good idea for you to help. They may At say all. they're okay. Yeah. So just tell 911, you know, the, the fire department may come and just help you up. I've seen that often. We've done that in our family where yeah. we just called 911. They come in and they just simply help them up. They're not necessarily going to take them to the hospital. So if that's a worry, that that's, may not even be a requirement. You just need to get off the floor, right? And so you want them to be able to do that. The other thing that I've seen is that sometimes they say, oh, I'm fine. You know, I, it's just a little sore. I get up and then they're sore for days and weeks. And later we find that they had a fractured hip because some people's level of pain is different than another person's level of pain. So while I hurt my toe and I'm at a 10, you hurt your hip and you're at a two, right? On the pain right. scale. And so you do have to watch your loved one. If you see they're limping or they're just walking different after that fall, you do want to probably call the doctor and just let them know that they're still limping or what happened. And we do want to change it. So even though nothing really happened, it appeared to you still want to just let your team member know, your physician, mm -hmm. primary care provider, that they had a fall. Because normally that's part of your annual assessment or wellness visit is they're asking you, how many falls have you had this year? That right. allows them to know what your risk factors are. And do we need to bring someone in like Kareja to see what's going on in the home and help you prevent those falls as well? And I would, just to piggyback off of that, I would even say, I mean, if there's a fall and even if it was uneventful, still contact your doctor um, and they should definitely get a referral. Yeah. Um, if there was a near fall or an assisted fall, I think that that also necessitates a referral because that's letting us know that there is some sort of decline, maybe in balance or strength or something else that needs to be assessed. Um, because what happens is then you will have a fear of falling and your fear of falling will lead to more falls. Right. Um, and, so, and when you say assist, you know, they say, no, they didn't fall. I caught them. Okay? Yeah, 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 exactly. I knew um, you caught yeah. them, but they pretty much fell. If you weren't there, they would have hit the floor, right? Right. So mm -hmm. that definitely is something we want to share as well. Absolutely. And so, you know, one of the preventive things that we can do for falling is to help our balance, to kind of strengthen ourselves, legs, arms, etc. How important is it for the loved one, the family caregiver to make sure that routine exercise is part of their daily routine, whether they're you know, walking or they're more refined to a chair or bed? So this is very important. Um, and if, if your loved one has recently been a part or discharged from therapy, they should have been provided a home exercise program. And, and that's a big part of, you know, the initiative of getting you uh, back to being you is making sure that you have something to help you maintain your strength and your balance. So uh, definitely making sure that they follow that home exercise program is key. Uh, the reason why that home exercise program is key is because it's individualized and personalized to them. Um, and if they have been under the care of a healthcare provider and a rehab clinician, they have already considered their limitations and the, their precautions and what is safe 
for them. Uh, if there, if your loved one is someone who's not recently had an injury or have not been under the care of uh, a healthcare provider and you just want to keep them active, uh, there are several programs that can help with that. One of the best exercises that an older adult or any aging person, aging adult could do is uh, Tai Chi. And mm. Tai Chi is a, it's a practice and it's like evidence-based. It's um, actually attended a class before, uh, wow. right? And it's very good for uh, postural control, balance, flexibility and strength. Uh, and so with any exercise program, you definitely want to make clear it with your, your physician. Yes. And then if the, if your physician has any concerns about your ability to participate in exercise, um, because oftentimes we get very specific parameters uh, for, for our patients, especially the ones who um, have some sort of cardiovascular um, issue or um, condition. We have, we have very specific parameters for when they're exercising. If there are any concerns uh, in that regard, then your physician will more than likely refer you to a physical therapist or occupational therapist just for uh, updated exercise regimen because that needs to be monitored. Um, and this is important. Medicare is even investing and in reimbursing for uh, monitoring of our your home exercise program. So this is something that they've wow. they decided was worthy. They said that you know home exercise, maintaining this 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 health um, and your wellness through exercise is important. Uh, but we want to make sure that you are doing the exercises correctly and that they are specific to you and your condition. And so you'll see uh, remote therapy uh, therapeutic monitoring a lot. And we're able to tap into an app and you know watch you do the videos and correct you on your form. Wow. And if we if we if we see that your parameters are off and you're reporting your blood pressure or your heart rate, uh, we can make accommodations and recommendations and I'll obviously report to your physician. So can family caregivers inquire about their loved ones or their own Medicare plan and ask if that's the service that's provided? Oh yeah, there? absolutely. Okay. Okay. That's great. Yep. Awesome. Awesome. Thank well, you. this is such a great information. I'm sure people are taking wonderful notes and um, we're going to have more. We're going to take a short break and we're going to come back with more information. Thank you. Okay. Hey, Dad, your prescription will be ready in just a minute. Hey, Dad, your laundry will be ready in just a minute. Dad, your lunch will be ready in just a minute. Hey, honey, why don't you take a minute? When you help care for a loved one, you give them as much time as you can. But it's just as important to take time for yourself. AARP can help. Find free care guides to support you and your loved one at aarp.org caregiving. That's aarp.org caregiving. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Welcome back. We have learned so much today about what you do as a therapist, Phaedra. You've given us such great information in your role or the occupational therapist role on the healthcare team. So now let's talk a little bit about your motivation and kind of why you do what you do. Um, has there been a personal experience as a family caregiver or, you know, as a therapist that impacts your work with families? Um. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, probably the, my earliest experience uh, in actually going into the community to provide care 
was with my my grandmother, my late maternal grandmother and her sister, my aunt Ruth, and they visited the sick and shut in, which is was very customary practice. And it, they didn't do any exercises with the people. But I remember I'm from a very rural area and we would drive 30, 45 minutes and, you know, long dirt roads just to see about people because you needed wow. to see about people. And uh, oftentimes no one, we were the only visitors they had that day. They were happy to see us. And later as I, you know, I graduated college and I moved, I moved away and I was a therapist and I, you know, my grandmother who, who aged and required home health. And I remember access was a very big issue for her because she lived in rural North Florida and um, just getting a therapist to come out. She could maybe get one to come out once every other week. And those therapists were working hard because they were covering just a large territory and she was so grateful for them um and i remember i started to do home health at the time and my territory at the time was for the most part all of chicago you know south so and you know and i was i was driving uh but still um there were more of me in 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 the right. city right. than there you know than clinicians in her area and i remember uh her saying make sure when you get to that you give those give those patients really good care you know right. because sometimes we don't you know you know we would love to be able to go to a place an outpatient center because she had great experiences um in subacute rehab actually um but she was homebound and she did live in an older home and so uh, that definitely uh, has a lot to do with the decision that I made to be in uh, a mobile practice that sees patients or clients in their homes, uh, because I do believe that that is the best place for you to be. Um, right. If that's, you know, if it's, if that's where you want to be. Um, I was also a uh, caregiver for a very close family friend um, as a young teenager. I may have been 12 or 13. Um, a friend of the family who had MS. And at, um, at this time she had, you know, bilateral hip flexion contractures. Um, she was non-ambulatory, um, she was incontinent and we were her family. Um, and my mom and I were her caregivers. And I remember, um, and I loved her dearly. And I remember just one day, you know, wanting to be outside playing and, um, you know, typical young, you know, teenage stuff. And I remember feeling so guilty um, because I, I was providing care for her. And I think she uh, sensed that I was tired that day. And that really hurt me because yeah. I, you know, I cared about her very deeply and I felt very guilty. And she said, and she could sense it. And she says, you know, she said, I understand. I'm sorry that you have to do this. And it was really, you know, it was really, difficult to kind of process that at that time. Um, but I remember that whenever I'm dealing with family caregivers, I always I do make a point to ask how they're doing. And yeah. sometimes I'll, I'll stay a little later after I'm done with my session, because I just want to sit down and talk to them because it's oftentimes the first time that day or that week or that month that someone has come to the house and, and asked about them, because typically they're asking about uh, the person who's, you know, who's not well. Um, and I do believe that the better we're able to uh, provide this type of care in the homes and the less physical assistance that our older adults need, the less burden 
for the family caregivers because there is a very strong correlation between the level of physical assistance that a person requires uh, that a family caregiver has to provide and their wellness. Yes. Uh, you know, caring for someone who needs assistance with toileting and they cannot help themselves, that's different from, you yes. know, caregiving for someone who just maybe needs someone in the house just to supervise them. And it's all very difficult on different levels. Um, but what the studies are showing is that that the more, the greater the physical assistance and that caregiver burnout and that risk to that caregiver is very dangerous. Absolutely. And we have to be concerned about that. Absolutely. Wow. That's, that's, yeah, that, those are all awesome points. And um, just the guilt as a young child that you felt about wanting to just be, do what's called normal things, play and be outside. Mm -hmm. And as adults, you know, sometimes we want to do normal things versus having to give. And it's, it's a guilt feeling that you have. But it's also a normal process through this caregiving process, right? Um, you're okay to want to do some things for yourself. You know, that's, it's okay. And not to real feel, feel guilty about it. But when you're in that place, it's difficult to have that. So addressing those emotions are very important. And that's another reason why mental health support groups are very important so that you don't feel alone. And it's a blessing that families have a therapist like you who are willing to sit down and talk because often they're in and out, they do their therapy and then they're out the door, right? And not right. having that empathy for the family caregiver. And that's really what they need. Even if it's just five minutes of how you're doing and them just to be able to vent that can provide some relief as well. And then you mentioned about rural communities. You know, when we're in the city and the thick of things, we kind of think that everyone has accessibility to everything, right. but sometimes they don't. And so to think about those rural families who may be listening to this, you know, reach out to the hospitals or the primary care physician, um, you know, the, the uh, AAA department in your area, just to kind of see what your resources are. If you're in Georgia, again, we rep recommend the power line to call that 404-463-3333 number so you can get some resources. And I'm sure every state um, country has a resource where you can call and ask questions. So if you don't have it in your area, just ask, ask, and ask again until you get the information that you need. Because it may be more difficult for you to get it, but does not mean that it's not accessible at all to you. So we want to encourage you to do that and empower you to be able to do that as well. Um, so Frazier, as we kind of wrap up, Order, you've given a lot of good recommendations, but let's drill it down to maybe two recommendations you would give the family caregivers to do immediately after listening to the podcast. Um, only two. <laughs> so for education, um, I love AARP. I just love, they just have so, like, I love their articles, yeah. um, you know, and they really cater, I'm, I'm, I'm finding, to caregivers. So I think that they are just a great resource for education, everything education. Um, obviously, you mentioned the other one, Empower Line, which would definitely put you in contact with a lot of areas, I mean, a lot of agencies in this, in, in that, well, Georgia, because um, we're in Georgia, um, the Atlanta Regional Commission on Agency, on Aging, the ARC. So I think that that is um, triple A. AAA. Yeah, that's triple A. Every state. Mm -hmm. And that's in every state. Um, HUD. 
So uh, HUD is a very good resource. They have a program that I'm telling everyone about, which is based off the Capable Program, which is a home modification, evidence-based program that includes an occupational therapist, a nurse, and a, handy a handyman, or repair, a repairman, and they um, make repairs to your homes. And so this is a grant-funded program. So if you have a HUD in your area, and you, maybe you need uh, rails, or maybe you have stairs and you need a ramp, uh, definitely get in contact with HUD and also Habitat for Humanity. They have a similar uh, program in a lot of areas. Um, and so the government is, you know, or there is grant money for these uh, modifications. So check these agencies out. Awesome. That's great. And now you mentioned some websites. Um, any other social media, anything else you recommend that caregivers follow um, as well during their journey? Uh, any other websites? I'm on AARP a lot. Um, okay. You can follow me, um, The Neighborhood OT, on okay. Instagram. Um, uh, but for the most part, Alzheimer's, um, which is another major organization. And I think that we definitely have to have that conversation on, you know, the risks of dementia in Alzheimer's and how, you know, we're also having a boom or increase in, in those referrals. Uh, and for people who are newly diagnosed who don't know what to do or what to expect, definitely check into your Alzheimer's Association. And they also have uh, a lot of caregiver support groups. Right. Yes, absolutely. And so how can they um, get in contact with you? You mentioned I think, Instagram. What are the ways can, can they get in touch with you? Uh, on my website, www.theneighborhoodot.com. I'm also on Facebook, uh, The Neighborhood OT. Um, and I'm also on LinkedIn, The Neighborhood OT. Okay. All right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. You have provided us with a lot of great information, a to-do list of things that we can do in the home for ourselves and for our, for our loved ones. And so thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And so the Empowerment Hour is presented by Call for Caring. Our organization supports caregivers through resources like today's podcast, expos, courses, and grants. You can learn more or donate to Call for Caring at callforcaring.org. Today's episode can be heard on uptomeradio.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and viewed soon on YouTube channel via the Call for Caring channel. So we hope today's episode of the Empowerment Hour has met our goal to educate, elevate and empower caregivers during their caregiver journey. Thank you.